in the poll's history, with only 30 percent of voters approving of his job performance. The House impeached Paxton late last month, alleging misconduct and lawbreaking. Support this local newscast and this station now by going to kpft.org and becoming a member. Thanks for tuning in. For KPFT News, I'm Elise Bench. Hi, this is Marina Rocks, and you're listening to KPFT Houston. Welcome to Growing Up in America here on 90.1 FM KPFT Pacifica Radio, a discussion on our children, public policy, and how do we as a city and community take care of all of our kids. Growing Up in America is a production of Children at Risk, the voice of Texas Children, a nonprofit organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, and collaborative action on behalf of Texas youth. Every week we aim to fill these same 60 minutes with lively discussion on the children of Texas with experts on the quality of life for our children. I'm happy to be joined today by Dr. Jamie Freeney, who's one, one such expert. She's the director of the Center for School Behavioral Health and Health. Mental Health America of Greater Houston. Thank you. Welcome, welcome. Of course, we have regular segments like Data of the Day, and today our teaser number is 114,055. I don't know what that Number is about, but we'll, know, see. we'll see. Today's guests and topics are um, we'll have Kim Coffrin, Senior Director of Education, Children at Risk, with an education check in. We'll talk to Mandy Sheridan Kimball, Vice President and Director of Public Policy and Government Affairs for, at Children at Risk. She will up brief us on the 88th Legislative Session outcomes. And then we will be joined by Trevor Totev. 
intern at Children at Risk, and his conversation will uh, center on education. We hope you'll be with us throughout the show as we discuss the issues as they affect the children of Houston and the children of Texas. Now it's time for our thumbs up, thumbs down segment, and our topic today is electric cars, and we'll discuss the pros and cons. Um, Some of the pros of electric cars would include environmental benefit, producing zero emissions, reducing air pollution, greenhouse gases, and all those things we don't want in our air. Um, We'll also like to consider um, the cost savings. Electric cars have lower fuel and maintenance costs compared to traditional gasoline-powered vehicles. And, of course, the cons of that would be limited charging, um, anxiety about the range of the vehicle before it runs out of electricity, um, and upfront costs, because they're, they're a little more expensive. So, Dr. Freeman, what are you thinking? Yeah, that's just, this is interesting. I, I certainly think we're going to get there eventually, um, whether we like it or not. But I do hope that um, while we're thinking about environmental changes and environmental impacts, that we also think about... Um, the distribution of these types of vehicles and is that going to um what's that going to do to the wealth gap what's that going to do to our economy um how is that going to impact the access that people have to the things that they need um also when we do start having electric cars what what are the roadways going to look like Mm -hmm. so it's going to be urban development there's going to be some there's going to be a lot of things that it impacts so really interesting um to think about and i'm certainly sure that they'll be here sooner than we think but yeah yeah you know depending on where you are in the country there's this uh cool factor right now with electric cars but you know here in texas we like our big trucks and we like our suvs and we like to put you know five six seven eight passengers in a vehicle and it really will be a paradigm shift sure we don't see as many smart cars around here Mm -hmm. than i I've seen in some Maybe of the in other Austin. cities, <laughs> right? Um, and and seem to be more walkable, friendly cities that where we see some of these smaller, more fuel efficient vehicles. But certainly, with there's always construction going on here in Texas, and there's you know it's it's so spread out. Um, then yeah, I I don't know. We we may see some, but I don't unless they start making like electric Chevys and Ford yeah. pickups, then. You know, I, I'm sure we, you know, we'll, we'll still see some of the old school, quote unquote, vehicles that are still around. Well, my my head says thumbs up, but sometimes my heart says I want to be in a, you know, big, big truck on dirt road. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Freeney, tell me something about what you're working on and, and uh, just give me a, a, a brief synopsis of kind of what's what you're doing for kids right now. Sure, sure. So um, as mentioned earlier, I serve as the director of the Center for School Behavioral Health at Mental Health America of Greater Houston. And Mental Health America of Greater Houston is a local affiliate of the National Mental Health America. And we have our Center for School Behavioral Health. We also have um, Integrated Behavioral Health Department. We have a Veterans Mental Health Department. We also provide mental health literacy to um, the community and many of our uh, community partners. And our public policy and government relations team does a lot of work in um, helping to write bills, helping to um, 
advocate on behalf of of bills and various laws that impact mental health, um, especially the mental health of young people. So right now we are continuing to focus on professional development, working to provide education to um, our folks in schools that are teaching, also folks that are working in out-of-school time organizations. So we really want to um, help adults understand what the signs of mental illness or toxic stress are so that they can refer that child for help, um, or at least so that they can give the parent information to um, help that child and support their their mental um, needs. So not only do we work with school districts and organizations, we also, um, as I mentioned, work with other stakeholders to help um, review and uh, modify and develop policies and practices that are equitable in nature, that are trauma-informed, that help to um, improve the environment for um, the mental health of our young people. And we are also a a convener. So we, we sit at the intersection of education and mental health and provide opportunities for networking, for building bridges, and for building connections between school systems and community partners so that there are uh, more um, opportunities for warm handoffs, for referrals for services, for referrals to activities, and so that we're creating this continuum of care um, when it comes to mental and emotional wellness for children. So um, love what we do. We are also starting to engage young people because times are so different now so we yeah. we have to ask them you know um, because we we certainly didn't face some of these same challenges when we were young um so yeah that's that's what we do and um i'm so glad yeah, you're i'm so you. glad you're here and i'm going to continue to ask you some things as we go along throughout the the program sure. i want to introduce now one of our wonderful um, summer interns at children at risk um, tis the season and we've our office is bustling with um Bright minds, ready to change the change the world and and change the future for kids in Texas. So, Trevor, welcome. I want to make sure I pronounce your last name right. I said Totev. Close. It's a uh, Totev. Totev. Okay. Yes. Thank you for for that. Yeah. Thanks for having. Me. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're working on this summer. Yeah. So, um, I'm originally from Denver, Colorado. Um, did my undergrad uh, in Kearney, Nebraska. Um, majored in education and uh, minor in political science. Came to Houston to teach, actually, in 2014, um, and I've been in A-Leaf ISD uh, ever since. And then I decided to pursue my master's a couple years ago um, at the Hobby School of Public Policy at the U of H. Um, And I'm getting my uh, master's in public policy with a specialization in education policy. Mm -hmm. That's Um, great. Yeah, so this summer with Children at Risk, I'm helping uh, on some chronic absenteeism projects, kind of looking at the factors that are influencing Mm -hmm. chronic absenteeism across Houston. Yeah, it's interesting because we don't really have a a clear definition of chronic absenteeism, at least from the perspective of of the state. So what um, what are your thoughts on just how do we get everyone to call it what it is? Right. Well, I think uh, nationally it's pretty uniform, you know, 10% um, out of the classroom. But I think more importantly it's the role – that schools play in, in that data collection to get an appropriate definition, mm-hmm. um, especially differentiate the reason why kids are, are yeah. being gone because an excused and unexcused is going to require different interventions. Mm-hmm. How do you, how does your um, personal life sort of inform this work that you're doing for kids? 
Um, so very closely. Um, I, uh, I'm a first-gen uh, college graduate and first-gen um, pursuing a master's, but I uh, grew up with a single mom, three kids, who uh, she has her GED. Um, so I consider myself uh, fairly lucky in like the experience I had in public education, and my choice to be a teacher was um, motivated by that, to, to try mm-hmm. and get other kids um, excited about the opportunities yeah. that come with education. Um, so that's a big reason why I came down to Houston, and specifically why I chose to stay in A-Leaf mm-hmm. um, for as many years as I have, is I just really like helping and wanting to help vulnerable kids. Yeah, I really do love that about our interns and our staff at Children at Risk is that we bring to the table a passion for this work, you know, either, either you know, as a, as a result of our personal lives or just personal commitments we've made to the work. And so I'm glad to hear that. Anything else you'd like to share with us about yourself? Um, I'm really excited um, for the work that Children at Risk does. I think in my, in my interviews I mentioned that, like, I've followed Children at Risk for since I've been in Houston, and I guess being a part of a, a collaborative effort to help kids and families is, it's inspiring. Um, yeah. And I also want to take a minute to thank um, our other guests for being here. Uh, the the intersection, I talk, talk a lot about the intersection of education and everything else, and, you know, post-COVID, even pre-COVID, mostly post-COVID, the, uh, the mental health aspect of education just needs to be emphasized even more. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate the work that you do. I'm glad you could be here with us. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I've recently had a discussion with a, a assistant principal, and we were talking about his main concerns, and his main concerns were absenteeism. And um, he mentioned not only absenteeism, but I guess chronic tardiness, like just coming to school late or leaving early and not um, there being a lack of accountability. So they have started to work with community members that will go into um, the parking lots that surround the school and kind of help corral the students back to school. There may be students, you know, out there just you know, loitering or hanging out and they're, you know, classes started, but they're just out and about not going to school. So um, what kinds of of interventions or um, solutions have you come across that could be helpful, especially given this post-COVID time when um, we seem to have lost a a large group of students who just didn't return um, after, you know, schools open back up so what are some of your thoughts on solutions and and how we can the community or how we can just better support the efforts of schools yeah it's a it's a great question i think the biggest thing we can do especially with stakeholders in kids lives and education is the collaborative um efforts between family community and school i i think that sometimes there's an over-reliance on accountability in schools but when it comes to something like absenteeism um, and chronic absenteeism with a lot of our at-risk youth, uh, a lot of this school's power um, is kind of restrained. So I think the collaborative efforts, like you mentioned, this community building. Um, I know United Way out of Pittsburgh years ago facilitated a large community um, effort that bridged gaps between like special education, their families, and the barriers of getting them to school, and really worked on how can these other organizations outside of the school work with families and individuals to make sure kids are getting to school. Um, I think a lot of, when you mentioned like loitering and stuff like that, it's a, it's feeling accepted being a part of something. Mm -hmm. And I think it takes, you know, the old saying, it takes a village, it takes a village to make people feel a part of something. And I think that communities, families and schools can work together to, 
to do that. Yeah, that's a great point that you bring up around that belongingness. Um, because I hadn't thought about that in the concept of absenteeism. I wonder if you feel as, as though you can look forward to going to school, you have a crew that you hang out with, or mm-hmm. there are other, like you feel like you belong. I wonder then, is your risk for um, engaging in absenteeism decreased because of that feeling? Or are you driven to that corner? Or are you driven to kind of hang out with your friends in the morning or after school because you feel more belong? You feel more belonging there. Yeah, and it's probably a, a two way street, if you will. And I think there's a role for um, both schools and family members to to come to a solution to that. Like, I think we can engage kids more and get a lot more of what kids want out of the the school day. You can have more yeah. time. Like, literally, just asking kids, like, what do you want out of the day? Like, yeah, we have to learn, but what can we do to help you and your friends yes. want to make this place mm-hmm. yours? Yes, um, yes, love that. I think one good example, even though it's not necessarily school, is. Uh, uh, here in Harris County and on the, the west side of Houston, they just got done with that A-Leaf Community Center, um, mm-hmm. which I think has been really big for the community. Like The uh, activities that they have in there from like teen mentorship programs, or they have a recording studio even. Um, kids can go and play instruments to all sorts of things. Is a, is a good example of that. Wow. I love that. Yeah. What do you think, what role do you think in absenteeism um, do basic needs play? You know, everything from sleep to shelter to food insecurity? Uh, I think large role. Uh, Nation's report card just came out today, and I think one of the things they found was uh, there has been an increase in absenteeism, but in the groups that already showed high amounts of absenteeism, which kind of tells to me that you know, you're making a choice that a need is not being met, so you're putting something over something else. So I think the schools can come together with community in local governments, even state governments, right, to solve those problems of mm-hmm. need. Yes. Well, I'm looking forward to the results of your work this summer and also looking forward to see what you'll do after that. Um, it, it's it's interesting how when our interns leave um, children at risk, they take with them into their fields of work, be it law, education, health, um, sort of this reminder that um, we have to speak up for the kids who can't speak for themselves in these areas. So please can uh, stay with us for this next segment if you'd like. We're going to talk about Juneteenth. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, you know, yes, uh, Monday was the celebration of Juneteenth. It was the the first of our national um, recognition of it as a holiday. Yeah. Um, the fact of the matter is that um, black families have and communities have been celebrating Juneteenth for over a century and a half. Uh, of course, the, the one-on-one of Juneteenth is that June 19th, 1865, General Granger sailed into Galveston and informed um, slave owners that... Um, in, the enslaved persons were free to um, move about and, and continue on with their lives. And, of course, we know that it wasn't uh, smooth sailing um, for, by any means, but um, families celebrated the day, remembered the day. Black churches and, and organizations gathered for years and years to celebrate, um, you know, in small events, sometimes large events, but but kind of under the radar, really. You know, my childhood in Central Texas, um, I grew up celebrating Juneteenth in church programs and community uh, organizations. And um, my great-grandmother, who I had the privilege of, of knowing most of my life, was, you know, would always gather the kids around and tell her version of, you know, General Granger and his General Order Number 3. So I really grew up kind of steeped in the knowledge. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized that not everybody knows what Juneteenth is and 
you know, how it's been celebrated. And um, even today, people don't really know kind of what to do with the holiday. And so, you know, we did some internal training last year or, you know, workshopping on Juneteenth and, you know, throughout ideas, you know, what does it, does it deserve a pizza party? Nah, you know, what, did, yeah. what does it deserve? You know, kind right. of, it's it, for, for most families that I know who have celebrated for years, it's more of a, a day of service or a day of observance. You know, you either pick something that you want to, some, some way to volunteer or some way to teach um, other generations what the, what the story is. So I'm interested to kind of know um, what, either of you um, has experienced in terms of celebrating the holiday before or even this week and sort of how you feel um, kids benefit from this, this annual observance that is now a federal holiday. So sure. I'll, I'll comment. I um, did not, I, I was not aware of Juneteenth growing up. I grew up in Kentucky and my family was from a lot of my family is from Texas. And so I heard about it, like it wasn't a foreign word to me, but I really didn't understand the concept and, and the meaning until I was a bit older. And it, and that came from my family. I was not taught that in school. So um, observing and having our own kind of awareness and observation and celebrations over the past years has has really led to that kind of community family thing that that mm-hmm. a lot of black communities neighbors do is is really getting together and fellowshipping and over food over um fun and um you know getting with your neighbors and family and friends yeah. and just a time to a day to reflect and and just to to appreciate you know the journey and where we are but I think um, now that it's a federal holiday, I think we'll have an opportunity to um, create a bigger lens mm-hmm. around it. And there is also now the opportunity to talk about it more and yeah. to um, now that it's being observed as a national holiday, there's a reason to pause and to think. Sure. And I am glad that they made it a federal holiday. I think it certainly will help increase um the awareness of mm-hmm. some black history that isn't sure. taught. And so we'll have conversations around Juneteenth and um, hopefully some of the um, cultural culture that comes with, with um, being from Africa or being of African descent, as well as being um, the culture of being African American, which is slightly different right. from the culture of being African. So I, I think there's going to be opportunities to um, delve deeper into what that means and as well as to shape some of that, to right. shape what that looks like moving forward. I mean, this generation now of young people, they are bold, they're brilliant, they are unapologetic. And so I just can't wait to see together as you know as we're continuing to um, create more spaces where we can observe some of these national moments in time mm-hmm. that really drive our history I can't wait to see what we do but I, I certainly think it sets um, sets the tone for um, education for communication for just raising that awareness and for 
families to be able to pass on mm-hmm. um, stories and for them to be able to pass on traditions. And some, so much of that was lost. So it also gives us right. an opportunity to kind of generate and create our own. But yeah, I'm I'm so glad that, you know, it's it's something that we're uh, publicly acknowledging and that um, the government is acknowledging and that we're we're celebrating. And I think um, we talked you guys talked a little bit about belonging. Trevor, how do you think that celebrating Juneteenth will um, foster a sense of belonging in some of the uh, in school children? Yeah, I think uh, the optimist side of me is that. It does exactly that. It, it makes kids feel a part, not only of uh, a school, a community, but of this nation, if you sure. want to get to the bigger part of it. And um, education, I think, is, is incredibly important on topics like this. Me, personally, I didn't know about Juneteenth until I got to college, mm-hmm. you know, um, 2008, yeah. roughly. Um, but now I make it a point as someone who taught AP U.S. history for years to introduce um, holidays and um, things like this. We, we read excerpts from... Uh, Annette Gordon reads on Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. Um, Keisha and Blaine writes a lot of good stuff. Great sure. historian. Um, Clint Smith mm-hmm. has has written a lot of good mm-hmm. stuff too. So I think that that sense of belonging and, and the recognition, like you said, by the federal government right. itself, maybe to some seems minuscule, but I think for a large portion of the population is, is huge. That yeah. that that your history is something like this. You can't be taken away. Um, right. Now on the flip side of that, I do see a lot of people that talk about like. There's some type of competition between Juneteenth and Independence Day, and I just I, I can I can I can honestly say that the barbecue is just as good on, right? on July Fourth as it is on June nineteenth. I can't imagine that the the community <laughs> gatherings, the family atmospheres, are that much different. No, but I think that was when I hear things like that. I think yeah. it's a symbol of all the reason more why we need to educate about Absolutely. these types of holidays and types of types yeah. of things. That and go I on. think just the 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 history of it and how you know bottom line. Texas was two years delayed in, you know, freeing enslaved persons is a fact, a fact that needs to be told not to, you know, denigrate anyone, but to uplift everyone and to, you know, let school children and, and, and adults alike know that, you know, history is just that it's history and we, we, we know about it and we learn from it. And that's, that's okay. I mean, that's a good, that's a really good thing. And mm-hmm. it shouldn't be shied away from. Yeah, and I, I also think that history is we we often um, don't give it the weight it's due because the systems and the policies and practices that we see now are a result from a lot of that history. Um, the fact that there are huge wealth gaps and huge gaps in education attainment and health, a lot of that can be compared to the fact that it took a whole two years Mm -hmm. for communication to go from the north can you imagine if there had been tiktok to the south (laughs) exactly like it wouldn't have it probably would have leaked before it was before it was actually in play so yeah um I, i can't imagine with tiktok but now i think the the great thing with social media is that we can spread that awareness faster and more broadly you know what's interesting is that even with juneteenth that that awareness spreading was taking place even informally you know my mm-hmm. my sister-in-law lives in chicago and she moved there in you know late 70s early 80s and she said that those were some of the largest juneteenth celebrations she'd ever seen coming mm-hmm. from texas going to chicago and realizing that wow it's celebrated here but you know as texas families 
left Texas and moved, they took it with them. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you, we hear about huge celebrations in Wisconsin, of all places, right? Um, for Juneteenth. So it really is just wonderful, and and it just lends us to understand that it's not necessarily about the delay, but it's about the jubilation. Yeah, you know, it's about you know the celebration that America might possibly be living up to its promise, you know, so. Or, or get a step closer, at least. That's yeah. right. That's right. Absolutely. Let's see. Are we ready for the data of the day? All right. We are going to introduce to you. I've got some jazzy music first. You flip the script for the hell of it. Addicted to betrayal, but you're relevant. You're terrified to look So I teased out the number 114,055 earlier, and I'm going to introduce to you Layla Mazzali, Director of our Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children at Risk, to talk to us about the equity report and child homelessness. Hi, Sharon. How are you? I'm great. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. In in spite of the fact, of course, that this number is never a cheerful number. um, so you did tease out earlier 114,055. Um, that is the estimated number of public school students in Texas who experienced homelessness in the 2018-2019 school year. Mm. That is that is disheartening. Can you tell yeah. us about that number and where where the report comes from? Yeah, absolutely. So this number was reported out in our equity report, our children at risk equity report, released a few months ago. Um, but this data was reported to the U.S. Department of Education. Um, and of course, after COVID, we do anticipate that these numbers are probably worse, um, but they also became more difficult to track and acquire. Um, so, you know, those numbers are from about, wow, I can't believe 2018, 2019 was four or five mm-hmm. years ago now. Um but after COVID-19, we do know that it upended a lot of people's lives. Um, and the thing is about children experiencing homelessness, like all people experiencing homelessness, is it's not always a straight line. So, right. um, you know, people can be in and out of housing. So at the moment that the numbers were captured, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were experiencing homelessness at that time. Um, but if you are in transitional housing or unstable housing, um, you know, it's very likely that throughout the course of a certain year, you will at one time experience homelessness. Right. I'd like to let our listeners know that to access the Children at Risk um, Equity Report, you can you can go to childrenatrisk.org. Um, Jamie, what can you tell us about homelessness and children's mental health? Yeah, so we know that some of those types of experiences can be traumatic for a child. Um, When we think about homelessness or when we talk about homelessness, I think it's important to, um, to, to think about the spectrum. So it's not necessarily a child living under the bridge. There could, it could be a child that's hopping from couch to couch, or it could be a child that is in a um, residential kind of, treatment center mm-hmm. um so I, I think we we certainly have to think about what contributed to that what led that child to be homeless 
And when we take that into consideration, there are absolutely consequences or impacts that it can have on um, the mental health of a child. I mean, from just in thinking about the child's perspective, you know, are they concerned about who knows that they're homeless? Are they, is it is it shaming? Is it embarrassed to them? Um, also, are there, you know, things that they are exhibiting that lets other people know that they p- potentially might be homeless? So mm-hmm. not being able to shower, um, wearing the same clothes or, you know, there, there are certain things that, you know, we can observe. So I absolutely think um, it has an impact on the child's mental health, but it just depends on the situation um, to when we think about is the severe, you know, severity of the mm-hmm. impact or what types of impacts it could have. But we certainly know too that it can be disruptive to a child in a learning environment. Sure. You know, they may be concerned about where their where their siblings are, you know, during the day if they know that, okay, well, I'm in school, but my, I have a three-year-old sibling that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe at a friend's house or maybe at daycare or, or maybe today's the day that CPS is going to sure. come and pick them up. So there's so many concerns. And I know that we, we, we know that removing children from their home environment can be even more traumatizing than whatever the original situation was. But, you know, sometimes I think it's really crucial for us to try to keep families together. Um, and so I, I know that there's a number of like women's shelters where you, you can have the family mm-hmm. or you can have the child. So just keeping in mind that, you know, the child support system, if they can maintain that, that will help to be a protective factor mm-hmm. um, against some of the other uh, situational things that they may be facing. Well, I'm a former classroom teacher, um, and just like like Trevor, I'm sure you know you you notice when children um, come to school, and you can tell you know if if they are struggling either um, with housing or, or basic needs. Um, sometimes the way that they look, or or their parents, or the appearance of their parents, um, at, at, uh, um, pick up and drop off. Um, and I know a lot of what you do is to talk to people about trauma informed care. What would you like teachers to know, such as Trevor um, or myself, in terms of uh, a trauma informed, a trauma informed yeah. care or approach to teaching in the classroom when you notice that a child may be stuck, uh, struggling with these issues? Absolutely. So hopefully there are um, supports on the school campus, either a social worker or a counselor that can um ensure that the child's basic needs are being met and maybe even providing resources to that family to um, let them know where they can get housing support or food and things of that nature. But I also think there's an opportunity for empathy and for compassion for that to be modeled in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So making sure that the child is not being teased, making sure that um, there aren't you know, students that are side eyeing or whispering. So being extra vigilant and, um, and being a champion for that child, I think is one thing. And then making sure too, that you are thinking about confidentiality. So if you're going to say something, if you're going to address the child or, you know, ask them something, then making sure that you're doing it when there's, you know, not in front of other people when, when there's no one else in the classroom. Um, and then also please, please, please be mindful of stereotypes. You know, I think we can make a lot of assumptions based off of, you know, what a child looks like or how, you know, somebody looks or what they say or do in that moment. Um, but I, I really want us to make sure that we're not giving in to that savior kind mm-hmm. of mentality. Oh, I got to save this person, but also that we're not building or making adding to their story 
details that we don't know. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, you know, being mindful that we're not um, perpetuating any of those stereotypes and, and that we are asking, you know, um, for clarity and that we're also not ignoring it. So there might be, um, you know, you, you might be expecting children to have a pencil and everybody has a belt and everybody has a this and a that. So if you know that there's something happening, you know, maybe not send that child to in school suspension because they forgot their pencil or they forgot their belt. I mean, there's, you know, when I say being empathy and looking through a lens of trauma, it extends all the way from your immediate response to any policies and practices you have on the school campus that, um, that just don't help at the end of the right. day. You know, it doesn't help for that child to be in the library versus in the classroom just because they forgot a book or they don't, you know, they don't have a belt on or, or what have you. So um, just being mindful, I think those are some things that we could be mindful of. Well, Layla, we really appreciate the work that you do. Um, having uh, accurate data is really the heart of, of uh, our work at Children at Risk. So thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, as we transition, I think we've got some music for you. Hi, Kim. See, they're playing music that we can relate to right now. <laughs> I can't hear the music. What are we playing? <laughs> Come together. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> well, our topic is education update. And I'm so happy to have my colleague, Kim Coffrin, who's Senior Director of Education at Children at Risk Online. would love to hear from you um, what's going on. What are some recent developments or changes in education policy that have occurred in the past year? Well, good to be with you, Sharon, and hello, everybody. Uh, so, yeah, so, you know, we just finished this, you know, this legislative session, and uh, we're still wrapping our minds around all the things that have changed, but a, a couple highlights um, when it comes to early childhood education specifically, you know, I think we, um, it was a, it was a year, uh, you know, we're coming off, coming off this pandemic still, right? And um, this federal, uh, we still have these federal dollars that are, com- that we are benefiting from that came in. Um, in 20 and, and, and 2021. Um, but those are all coming to an end. So we're, you know, we're looking at how do we, um, how do we, what is the new normal when those come to an end? And what's that going to mean for child care centers and, and early education facilities across the, across the state um, when those, those funds run out? And, you know, unlike, um, not unlike the, our public school um, brothers and sisters, you know, our early childhood education community is also dealing with staff shortages. Um, and so um, I think we're going to have a, a bit of a, a transition here in the next year when that comes to it. Um, when we think about policy changes, one thing that that, that changed um, or is about to change or has a potential to change is, you know, with that, with that financial um, support going away, one of the things we um, – were able to work on this session and we got passed was this uh, a property tax relief um, for um, for child care centers um, and giving them uh, the local communities an opportunity to give those that relief to pass it on to um, child care providers across the state and that is going to be up for a constitutional amendment um, vote on uh, in November and so we're excited about gearing up for that and talking more about it over the next couple months and having the vote to the general public in, in November. That's great. 
Well, I'm joined today by Dr. Jamie Free and our our intern, Trevor Toteve, and they've got some questions for you. Great. Yeah, so uh, looking ahead, um, what do you see as major upcoming policy challenges um, or opportunities in education? And what steps should be taken to address them? You know, it's, I think you know, there's, there's lots when it comes to education. So when you're thinking about early childhood education specifically, and then I'll go to the K-12 piece, um, is the piece, um, you know, I think as this funding comes to an end for early childhood um, and we haven't, we haven't figured out a solution in Texas yet about how we're going to support young families with their child care costs. Um, the, this extra funding has helped to keep doors open and keep um, uh, costs somewhat manageable, um, but families across the state are struggling to find child care and they're struggling to afford it. So I think we still need to continue to have those conversations and figure out what those solutions are for Texas. Right now, we're 100% reliant on the federal dollars to to uh, provide the, the supports that we currently provide, and the state needs to step up and figure out what our role is that, and that makes sure that we're, we're part of that solution so more families can get back to work and more children can be in high-quality programs. When it comes to K-12, you know, the jury's still out. We have, uh, a, we have heard rumors that the next, uh, another special session around education will be coming this fall. Um, we know they did, you know, had a, a voucher uh, debate in this last regular session, and that wasn't settled. And so we're anticipating that conversation happening. You know, and when that conversation happens, we really worry about what that means for our low-income families, what that means for um, our our rural communities, um, and making sure that we really are providing a high-quality education for all children across the state. And so as those conversations continue, we will be part of those conversations trying to make sure that that um, that we don't um, shoot ourselves in the foot by thinking something new and different is going to be better. Mm-hmm. So I had a question, um, Kim, around the... Um, safety measures and I know we've we've heard a lot around school safety and this allotment for hardening hardening versus softening measures to improve um, the safety of our school campuses has there been any additional conversation around what that might look like or where um, funding efforts are being funneled or, or targeted is there any advocacy for more of the softer measures versus the hardening ve- measures or anything, um, any any updates on that that you've heard? Yeah, you know, I think that's, that. yes, the conversations continue because, one, the advocate community knows that, you know, it's not just the hardening measures that are going to really make a difference. It's those soft softening measures. You know, and I think one of the things that worries me is, um, you know, as we um, have conversations with, the, with our legislators and they're worried about, these soft skills, these social-emotional stuff, we know that's really the stuff that needs to happen to prevent these shootings in the future. We know mental health is a huge piece of it, and when kids develop a healthy sense of self and their needs are met, that's going to be less and less likely, or less and less um, uh, likely there's going to be a shooting in the future. So Mm -hmm. it's changing the dynamic and changing the conversation of, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a this or this. It's it's both. Mm-hmm. It's got to have. We've got to have. We've got to have. You know, safety measures in place by all, by all means. But we also have to make sure that teachers feel safe and children feel safe, and not just by the locks of the on the doors or a police officer on campus, but they feel 
safe by ha- to have conversation and safe to explore and learn and develop and figure out what this world is about. That's, I mean, that's what kids do. Um, and teachers need to feel safe to be do that. So I think we have a long way to go to make sure teachers feel safe on that piece. You know, I think the, as far as like what's next with that, um, you know, we, we have to live into what just happened and, and where, where that all, all mm-hmm. plays a part. But I think we can also look at other states and figure out what other conservative states are doing um, and, um, and figure out what really is the best method to move forward on, on how do we keep, keep our children safe, both emotionally as well as physically. And speaking of moving forward, what are some of the ongoing initiatives or advocacy efforts that you're working on at Children at Risk um, that we can look forward to? Well, you know, in the early childhood realm, we're always looking at how to continue to improve this, the, 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 our, our system. You know, our, our current funding is um, you know, only serving 14% of those eligible kids, and those are low-income kids, right? So we're only serving 14% of the eligible kids, and we don't even have any supports for our middle-income families who we know are just as much struggling for, to afford child care as, as everybody else. So, how do, like, so I think those, that advocacy effort of how do we continue to make sure that we're setting up a system for all children to have access, no matter where your income level is, and, um, and so thinking about those systems, um, you know, living into this quality piece, living into our Texas Rising Star program um, that really looks at uh, looking at child care. And, you know, in the public ed space, I think we, it's looking into, um, again, how do we keep children safe both physically, but also emotionally and mentally so that we, because we know when children feel safe, they can learn. Um, and if they don't feel safe, that learning is, is harder to take place. So we want to make sure that we're, we're reaching all their needs. Well, Kim, I know you set up shop in the Capitol pretty much during this this legislative session. So I thank you for your advocacy work and for being a champion for children. Um, And we'll talk to Mandy Kimball in a second to give us a further um, deep dive into what um, we witnessed during during this legislative session. But thanks, Kim. We appreciate you. The stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas, the prairie sky is wide and high. Deep in the heart of Texas. So I have to instinctively clap when I hear deep in the heart of Texas, ingrained in me since kindergarten. (laughs) Welcome, Mandy. This is Mandy. We're going to talk now with Mandy Sheridan Kimball, who's our Vice President of Director and Director of Public Policy and Government Affairs at Children at Risk. Um, she is our guru for all things in the um, pink building in Austin. And we'll talk now about um, the legislative session and get a really good debrief from Mandy. Yes. The, the quick and dirty version. Uh, Mandy's always a, a great ball of like information and just I'm so ready for your update, Mandy. Let it, let us hear it. Let us have it. <laughs> Who knows what's going on right now? I'm <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's great to um, to talk to both of you. And before I start off, I have to thank you for for the for both of y'all's hard work this session. I know um, y'all did a lot of prep work before the legislative session to inform legislators and their staff around various issues. Um, Jamie, you were all mental health behavioral health this is how it goes sharon was talking about mental health behavioral health equity issues 
steps that we can take to really support all children in Texas. So, and that continued throughout the session and couldn't have done it without you. So thank you both so much. You got it. Sure. So I heard a little bit about um, what Kim was saying, who was covering early childhood education efforts, I believe. She did. And I think on our agenda now, we'd like to hear a little bit about Senate Bill 1145, SJR 64, and then, of course, HB 567. Oh, great. Okay. Well, both of those bills are, were milestones for, for Texans. Don't you agree? 1145, Senate Bill 1145 mm-hmm. by Senator West mm-hmm. um, focuses on child care. And then House Bill 527 was looking at um, discrimination, hair discrimination, right? And the Crown Act that I know that, that you worked so hard on, Sharon. Yes, yeah, congratulations. Yeah, yeah it was it yeah. was um, super important. It was a little thing that you would think wouldn't be a big thing, but I think I think kids in Texas will, will really benefit from just being able to show up at school and be their authentic selves. Yeah, it's great. And it was school and businesses, right? And schools I, and, and, schools and businesses. You and I had this conversation. I'm like, it's the business piece that's going to trip us up. Yep. got to focus yep. on schools. But, you know, I love it when I'm wrong. <laughs> and you, you, you can't see us in the on, on the radio, but Jamie and I are, are sitting here probably wearing some really cool, um, protective Afrocentric styles yes, as, as we speak yes. to you today. So it feels it feels great to know that that's, that's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It is okay. It is okay. And that kids can see their mothers and fathers and know it's okay and that they can go to school and not be penalized for that in any way and feel good about themselves. And, um, you know, that's when people think, okay, there. But, Sharon, you've always had a great story about how hair straightening products, right, and what that does to people's hair, but what that can do to a woman's health. Yes. Absolutely. We're seeing a lot of research now that hair straightening chemicals can cause fibroids and cancers and skin conditions that, you know, women need to be able to make a choice as to what they want to expose themselves um, and their children to. So I'm, I'm, I'm super happy. I, I, I feel like, um, you know, first week or so, I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop smiling about it, but, but I haven't stopped. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's, it's hard for me to stop smiling too. Just, just t- talking about it because for me, I think it changes the perception of what a professional person looks like. Mm-hmm. And we no longer, and, and I say we, because I did this myself, I no longer have to worry about, okay, if I want my hair like this for vacation, how am I going to get it back to normal, mm-hmm. quote unquote, normal mm-hmm. for Monday's work, you yeah. know? So it just, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot that goes unsaid when you have something like this, which, you know, unfortunately we have to have something like this in place, but because, you know, we do um, now acknowledge and we have the crown act in place, it's something that we can really start to change the perspective of what it means to be professional, what it means to look this way or that way. And I think we will, I don't know that we're going to, you know, if anybody's going to measure this or not, but I, I feel like we would also have an increase in belongingness mm-hmm. on, you know, in certain organizations, on certain campuses, because you do now have the freedom to be um, your authentic self and to 
you know, allow the cultural influences um, to, to come through. You don't you don't have to hide from that yeah. or it's or it's not belittled or it's like, oh, you can't wear that in the office. That's not you know, that's not the case. And so I'm really excited and happy for you all um, and thankful that you all went after this so assertively um, to see it pass because it does it. it there's more meaning to it, I think, that we can even put into words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't. I, I Every woman in my family, I can I can look at and see, you know, that this is going to make a difference. I had my little four year old niece with me um, a couple of days ago, and it just gave me a, just a big old warm fuzzy to look down at her mm-hmm. little hairstyle and twist mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. know that she can show up for kindergarten and that be, you yeah. know, totally acceptable. Yeah. So really pleased about it. Say, Mandy, you got time for us to ask you five fun questions. Uh, I know you have had a hectic um, legislative session, so we'd like to Let's in- have some fun. indulge have you in some frivolity here for a minute. <laughs> and I'm going to let I'm going to let Trevor, who's in the in the studio with us, start the questioning. Yeah, I'll start with the first one here. Um, so, Mandy, what was your favorite book to read or be read to as a child? Oh, well, in elementary school, I loved Nancy Drew. Did y'all read okay. Nancy Drew at all? It's a detective show. It's a whole series. Yeah. It was great. Yes, I think she has a. Isn't it on HBO now? I think so. I, sure I remember reading show. all the books. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like big stuff. That's big stuff. I actually kind of wanted to be Nancy Drew growing up. But what did, what did you want to be growing up? Oh, I I couldn't make up my mind for a minute. I'm one of those people that had to think. Um, and I remember in high school taking a test. They, you know, what would be best for you? And the results were um, that said I should be a paramedic that drives an ambulance because I wanted to help, but I like to move quickly. I thought that. <laughs> so, so you know, as a, as a parent to to a boy that that as a, a mom to a boy, you kind of are that ambulance and, and EMT worker, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know you're you're sitting over there like you have no idea. <laughs> Just this morning. (laughs) So if you um, were to step into Hollywood, what actor or actress would you would play you in a movie of your life? Oh, I don't know. Um, This has been asked of me before and I had a colleague near and answered for me and they said Sandra Bullock. Yes. And I don't, yes. I, yeah. We don't really look a whole lot at each other, but maybe our personnel, I don't know. I, I there's some similarities probably. Yeah. Sandra Bullock. I can see I, it. I, I, I can yeah. totally see it. Right, um, uh, <laughs> gosh, I I want to answer this one too. I'm going to Do you have a comfort movie, <laughs> TV show or book? If so, what is it? That's a good one. Hmm. Um, well, it depends on the mood, right? On if you're, I, it, you say comfort. Oh man! I know. That's I'm trying hard. to think of mine. This was the only one I knew a definitive answer to. The other ones, I was like, I have no idea. But this one, for me, it's The Office. I don't oh, know why. Yeah. That. Oh, that gives you comfort. I just yes. put it so on. That's your laughing. Yeah, put it on in the background, and if for some reason it just soothes me. Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nostalgia. 
I know. In the office this what? morning, Dr. Bob was asking people to, to rank on a scale of one to ten how weird they are. And I was sitting there thinking seven <laughs> or eight because I would weirdly watch The Fifth Element anytime it comes on. <laughs> the Fifth Element. I think there was, I just saw a Twitter debate going on about The Fifth Element this weekend. That is um, hilarious. Well, mine would be, and I think mine is probably the most off, but I can put on Wild Earth. Uh-huh. It's a YouTube channel, literally just Wild Earth, and it's live safaris. So, oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I can literally put that on. I have. I mean, I do. I put it on in the background all day, and when I have visitors, they're, you know, commence the eye rolling and, oh, you're watching this again. <laughs> like, yeah. yes, the elephants what? are doing something different today. Thank you. It's true, and it's soothing. So if I just want, like, love happy, I love love actually is is a good one it's just easy it makes me laugh but mm-hmm. one of my favorite movies ever is dangerous beauty have y'all seen it oh i don't think i know okay so and i would never let my kids watch it so <laughs> there but it takes place it takes place in venice and um back back in the day of like witch trials and there was a courtesan and you just had your your own class and you couldn't do that but women were treated terribly right mm-hmm. and and used in whatever but there was this one who prevailed was smart intelligent liked to read you know had a voice got in trouble that sounds um, like you mandy crazy <laughs> yeah, dangerous beauty not appropriate for kids <laughs> well our I'll last be, i'll check that out i'll definitely be checking that out the last of our five fun questions is who motivates you in your life oh wow uh, you know i have to i have to say my parents my parents always mm-hmm. motivated me my dad always um was was a motivator until I mean, every time I talk to him, he's like, you kick butt today? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And or if you just want to vent, he would he would hear me out, say some words and then say, "Okay, talk to your mom. (laughs) All right. (laughs) (laughs) That is so universal. (laughs) I even got that on Father's Day. Father's Day, Dad. I'm good. Here's your mom. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) I love him. Well, thank you, Mandy. Thank you for all you do. I hope you're getting some much-needed rest, even though there are miles to go before we sleep. Yeah, that's right. I'm getting as much as you, Sharon. I know, I know. Let's go. All right, let's go. Thank you. Y'all have a wonderful time. Thank you. You got it. I want to thank uh, Trevor Totiv, and I want to thank Dr. Jamie Freeney for joining. I am Sharon Watkins-Jones, Chief Equity Officer at Children at Risk. And I thank you so much for listening to Growing Up in America by Children at Risk. And if you enjoyed these discussions, please tune in next Wednesday from 12 to 1. There's no telling what we'll be talking about then. Talk to you soon.
Monday, and you're literally sucking baby snot through a tube because she's congested. Man, that's love. And if you love her that much, love her enough to make sure she's buckled in the right car seat. To make sure your child's in the right seat for their age and size, visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. This message is for Shana, my mom who just finished her high school diploma. I wanted to say I'm so proud of you for finishing school. You taught me it's never too late to achieve your dreams. I hope to make you as proud as you have made me. When you graduate, they graduate. Finish your high school diploma for you and for them. Visit finishyourdiploma.org to find free and supportive adult education centers near you. Brought to you by the Dollar General.